Lord God, thank you for your sweet exchange. We need your light, your precious revelation, your Holy Spirit to understand and to grasp how wide, how great, how unimaginably wonderful is the work that you have accomplished in such a sweet exchange. God, we ask today that by the power of your spirit, you would illuminate our hearts that we may understand what this means. Amen. This is day two of Romans. Last week, we covered justification, specifically how God has fulfilled his saving promises throughout the Old Testament through the death and resurrection of his son. Last week, we saw that a summary of Romans was the word righteousness. I explained how Perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, this book could be explained and summarized in one word. Righteousness. How God's righteousness came to bear on us and how he gives us his righteousness in Christ. We talked about how Romans was ground zero. Paul showed how both the Jews and the Gentiles are guilty of dishonoring God by failing to worship him and are indicted. Yet, both can be justified or made right with God through the saving work of Christ. We looked at how justification happens on the basis of the blood, and it is judicial. It's where God accepts the payment for our sin following our indictment because Christ was perfect, and therefore he exchanges our, basically our judgment that we deserved is placed on him, and then the Lord puts his wrath on him, and then there is this exchange of righteousness. We learn that how membership in the people of God now depends on being rightly related to Jesus for both the Jew and the Gentile, and we saw how the worldwide blessing that was promised through Abraham has become a reality now that the Gentiles are included in the promises of Israel. And as such, we become a recipient of the blessings and the promises of Israel by incorporation into the Messiah. Now in chapters 5 through 8, Paul has made the summary easy because where he focused on justification in the first four chapters, in chapter 5, there is a shift in what he is talking about. Whereas the first week he dealt with sin, now Paul is going to address the sinner. This is very important, and this is the emphasis of our text today. God did much more in Christ's death than just forgive us of our sins. I don't know if you've ever seen the bumper sticker that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Well, it falls short because we are not just forgiven. Justification works with sanctification and regeneration to do something that is glorious for God's purposes, and that's what today will be about. Last week we saw how the Twin Towers fell and they came to nothing. Well, what we're going to see this week is that God is going to build a new tower, something that only he can do. Romans 5, 9 says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more 
Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What does this mean? It is magnificent what it means. And today that's what we're going to look at. Specifically, we're going to look at what it means to be in Christ. We will see that we are a new people with a new heart and a new Lord. And then finally, we're going to finish up in chapters 9 through 11 where Paul is going to answer, if all the blessings that were promised to Israel have come to the church, then what about Israel? In chapters uh, 12 through 16 of Romans, we're not going to cover because these are exhortations, and it's, we are, our focus in this study has been the redemptive thread. So in chapter 5, Paul is going to look at that and, and kind of draw our attention to the fact that it's not just sin that the Lord needs to deal with, but he needs to deal with the fact that we are sinners, okay? And this is a big deal, so I'm going to go to some, uh, some links to try to hound this in our brains and to make it real to us. But if we go back, what was God's purpose all along? Well, in short, it was the garden. God wanted us to enjoy eternity with him where we were not affected by the result of sin, where we walked with him in harmony and with other people, and we enjoyed, enjoyed his glorious paradise. And we know this. We don't have to look much further than Facebook to realize that everybody's trying to get back to the garden. We all want our lives together. We want to all experience peace and contentment and joy. And, and it's, it's what we were created for. God set it in our hearts. And he has a plan to restore this world to what it was originally intended to be. But what we're going to see today, that what he's going to restore it to is going to be even more glorious than it was prior to sin. Isn't that phenomenal? So we know that when sin struck humanity, our glory collapsed, and along with it, any hope of returning to paradise. The towers fell. There's no way to rebuild that structure. So our first problem is that the towers fell, and that was sin. Sin was the plane that struck humanity. But our second big problem is that there's nothing in us that can rebuild that tower. But God has a plan to rebuild the structure symbolically, and literally to return us to the garden where the creation will be restored in greater measure, and this is referred to as the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, we see that this is the main subject and what Christ talks about far more than the land or many of the other things that we saw in the Old Testament. So all of a sudden, everything has changed. My husband had a book one time that was called The Upside-Down Kingdom, and I've never read it, but that has stuck inside my head because there are so many things that are backward that happen now that Christ has come. Backward but good. In justification, God dealt with our sin, but to restore what God, le- God lost, he actually needs to deal with just more than that. He needs to deal with us as the sinner, and this is what we see in chapter 5. And so today's topic is not justification, but it's regeneration and sanctification, which are different things. They all work together. They don't happen separately, but they do different things. And so what do they do? So last week we saw how sin is our biggest problem and justification was dealt with by the blood, okay? Our sin was imputed to Christ and then the wrath came on him and we know that we are forgiven uh, by the blood because God accepted that sacrifice and that is a fact and so we accept it as a fact and we move on. That was God's solution to our sin. So what he did is that he 
did away with what we have done as sinners. And he put it away, but we still have a problem because we sin because we are sinners. And our hearts are corrupted by sin. So God has to do more. Paul says that we are sinners for one reason. We are born in Adam. This is a big deal. As being born in Adam, we have inherited his corrupt nature from him. How did this happen? Adam lost his glory because he and Eve wanted to be like God instead of giving God lordship. Adam was the first one to be guilty or indicted. The Bible explains that the seed of Adam is therefore corrupt. And those who are born after Adam are born of his seed, and we have a sin nature. So right after I got saved, I decided that I was going to leave my life of sin, and so I needed to go as far away as possible. And so I did. I got baptized, and then I did a study abroad in Australia. Um, and I went down there, and I was really bored because I no longer partied. Uh, and so I decided I was going to do really fun things, like I joined a rugby team, and I traveled with Australians, and uh, uh, you know, I learned about magpies and birds and all this stuff, and I got to go skydiving over the Great Barrier Reef, which was super fun. Um, and on the way up, it was a very uh, eye-opening experience because Australians, you know, they say no worries uh, be, all the time. I mean, like, it's not just something you see on TV. They literally are like, no worries, no worries, no worries. And, uh, and, and you get there and you realize <laughs> you kind of feel like there is something to worry about. Uh, the plane was really rickety. Um, like, I remember when I even arrived from being overseas, I went to this place called Wagga Wagga is where I lived. Uh, and, and, and they didn't even know I was coming. I mean, it was, it was the strangest thing. They, 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 don't, they don't worry about a lot, but there's a little more to worry about. Uh, anyway, that's a whole different story. But um, so, so we go up on this plane, and I'm up there, and the, and the plane, first of all, feels like we're not even going to make it. And, um, and because it was my first time skydiving, you do it tandem. Uh, and, and so this guy, this Australian, is strapped on my back, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And you get up there, and it's about time to jump, and you realize there's a very specific reason this guy's tied to your back. Because you are going down no matter what. And you know this because what they do is they edge you to the edge of the plane, and then you get on your knees, and you kind of put your arms like this, and then they tell you to count to three, and it, that's a very long three seconds. And it occurs to you in that moment that if I don't jump, I'm going down because he is going to push me out of this plane. I am going down no matter what. And I will share my initial experience with you just because it's so entertaining. All I remember is that your face kind of goes like this, and then all the snot and everything kind of comes out of your <laughs> face and hits the cute Australian, I might add. And, and that's really what I experienced. But I, and I remember that, but then I remember that he would do these flips and all this stuff, and everything he did, I would do too. It was, it was really kind of cool. But the thing that surprised me the most about, um, about uh, jumping out of a plane, whatever it's called, skydiving, is... When you pull that parachute, it is the most peaceful experience that you could ever possibly imagine. It is silent. You feel safe. It's spectacular. And I looked down on the Great Barrier Reef, and it looked like people just dumped colors. It's like the Lord just dumped colors on it. It was, it was amazing. But I would not have had this experience if I didn't have a parachute. It would have been my inevitable doom. Okay? So, why did I share this story? 
being born into this life is like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. In fact, they even had t-shirts. I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane. Uh, it's kind of cute. But flying tandem, our guides made sure we were going to jump. What he did, I did. Just so every human that is born in Adam jumps out of a perfectly good airplane, no matter what. That is what the Bible says. We sin because we are born in Adam. And in Adam, we are no less on a collision course with death than jumping out of a plane without a parachute. Because being in Adam, there is no provision for us to be saved. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, In Adam, all die. Because of God's judgment on sin, death is the outcome no matter what. Because we are born in Adam, we are spiritually dead and cannot save ourselves. Because in our deprived, depraved state, there is no parachute. So, we died because of Adam's sin. And if you heard Brian last weekend, we actually died because of our own. At the end, God will say, no, you jumped. You, you sinned because you jumped. Okay? Isn't that fascinating? We are in Adam, but we are still accountable for our sin. We sin because we jumped. And I can tell you right now, I don't tell everyone that I'm like, oh, I'm skydiving. Oh, this guy made me jump. No, I tell everyone, I jumped out of the plane. Right? In the end, we are guilty. Tom, Thomas Schreiner says, all people inevitably sin because they enter the world alienated from God. So my analogy falls short here. Because God doesn't just give us a parachute. That implies that he just wants to save us from death. Okay? That's not what his purpose is. In Christ, it's like we aren't falling any longer. We are back on the perfectly good airplane that we jumped out of to begin with on a direct flight according to God's good purposes and safe from sin and death with Christ at the helm. This is a bit of what it looks like to be in Christ. But we have a little bit of a problem getting back into the plane because we are in Adam. And in our natural state, we are out of the plane. Now, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite action actor, I will say this, is, uh, is Tom Cruise. And one of my favorite things he's in is a Mission Impossible. I love this. And I was researching this because I had an excuse to do so. It was so fun. And um, he actually jumped out of a plane 106 times to get three shots correct out of jumping out of the plane. But then I wanted to know, did, he ever, did they ever in Mission Impossible get him back on the plane that he jumped out of? And I did find in Rogue Nation where he catches a plane and goes up into the air. Um, and you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, if you know where he gets back on. But nowhere in Mission Impossible is he successful getting back on the plane, okay? Getting on the plane in real life is no less of an impossibility because God is spirit and we are spiritually dead. That is our problem. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God. So what is required, according to God's plan, is that we need to become new people through a new birth. That's how we get on the plane. Jesus explains this difficult matter to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. John 3 Verses 3 through 8, he says, Truly, truly, when Nicodemus asked him, How is one born again? Uh, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the Spirit, 
or the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. To be in Christ, we must be born again of God, where we are literally born of a new seed. In Christ and not in Adam. So it's not about good versus bad. It's actually about flesh versus spirit. God does this through regeneration, which is a new birth, not through the blood, but he does this through the cross. Okay? Paul unpacks this for us in the sixth chapter of Romans. So if you would like to open your Bibles to chapter six of Romans, you can follow through me, and we're going to dissect this verse. Romans three or six three says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What this means is that since we came in by birth, being in Adam's seed, we must go out by death. In other words, there has to be a destruction of the old, according to God's purposes, before the new can come. So now, the blood can wash away our sins, but it can't deal with our old man. So in the cross, God deals with me, the sinner. This is the reason that Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. I found 1 Corinthians 15.45 very enlightening on this matter. Paul explains, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. As the last Adam, Jesus, was the sum of all humanity. This was his life that was represented from Bethlehem to the tomb. And as the last Adam, it relates to him in the crucifixion. It is the death. That's why it is the cross. The way that God deals with Adam's entire race is he ends his seed. He ends it in Christ. And the way he does this is kind of like you have to picture the blood. Remember how I said last week with the blood, you picture before you come to the throne room, the, the, the blood is on you, and so God looks at that and he accepts the sacrifice? Well, this is very similar. It's kind of like... God puts you in Christ, and when he died, he killed you too. Now, this is strange to us, and I would like to say that this is something that we can pray for revelation for, and we can ask God to show us this. And the reason I know that this, this just doesn't come easily is ever since I've been back to Kentucky, I've really struggled with running into people in my old life. And I'm so worried because as soon as I see them, all of my past comes back to me, and I'm so fretful. Um, and it occurred to me, as I was doing this study, that the Lord was working on my heart and grasping these truths, because one of the reasons I'm so insecure is because I feel like that is still me. I'm still ashamed of her. I don't think that part's bad, but I, I still sometimes don't feel far enough from her, and I fail to focus and realize the fact that I'm dead. It would be the same as if I saw someone now, and they were like, hey, Sarah Smith. I could, from a biblical standpoint, respond to them, who? I, have, I don't know who she is. She died with Christ. That's what that means. So then what I have to do, I have to, I have to accept that. I have to realize that it's not a feeling. This is no less a fact than what the blood was. This is what God did in Christ, and so I have to hold to that. Verse 4 through 6 continues, 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So not only is his death our death, but his resurrection is our life. See, we sometimes think that now that we're a Christian, that God is making a better us, but this is not biblical. God makes us new people. And as a new people, we are three things that I'm going to focus on. Number one, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so not in Adam, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Number two, he is made in the same order of the universe. It is something out of nothing. So when he created the universe and he said, let there be light and let there be this and this and this and this, that is the same order in which he makes us a new creation. Whether we feel it or not, this is what he has done. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the same type of, of language that Paul is using. This is what he has done when he creates us new in Christ. And number three, we are a member of a new race with Christ at the helm. He died to inherit a new race. We are in his inheritance. Isn't that incredible? In 1 Corinthians, I just read um, 15, uh, 45. So after we learned that Christ was the last Adam, Paul changes his title, and he doesn't refer to him the last Adam again. I want you to notice what he refers to Christ. So it says, um, so I, I, when I said, uh, when I first read 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it said, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Okay, so, so God uses, or Paul uses the last Adam to refer to Christ, but then in, um, and then in the second part of that, of the second, the next verse, he says, the first man was from the earth. So that's Adam, okay, a man of dust. That's who Paul's referring to. But then he says, he doesn't say the last Adam, he says the second man is from heaven, which is Christ. So all of a sudden, he doesn't call Christ the last Adam. He calls him the second man, and that's really significant. Why doesn't Paul just refer to Christ as the second Adam again? Because he's not the second Adam. He is the last Adam, and he's actually the second man, okay? As the second man, Christ is the head of a new race and a new humanity, and as the last Adam, his life ended at the cross. As the second man, the life of Christ and the new race begins at the resurrection and extends into eternity. And he is the beginning of the new race for all of those who are his because we are what he inherited by his obedience through his death on the cross. So as the, whereas the Israelites gained a safe place in the land, the true Israel, Christ, will inherit a perfect bride he will become the first of many brethren who will fill the whole earth. And the emphasis of his inheritance is not a physical blessing, as, as much, or, or it's not about the land, but it is about the church. It's about the body. Watchman Nee says of these great facts, and I love, I, I, you know, I, I, he's, he's, um, he's a dead missionary in China, and he helped, uh, he, he has a way of explaining things, and I'm like, oh, that's so different. But it, it's very good. He says the greatest negative in the universe is the cross. The greatest negative. The entire universe is the cross. Because in the cross, God wipes out everything that is not of himself. And the greatest positive in the universe is the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, God has brought together all 
that he will have in the new world. And nothing in the old world can transfer to the new. And this is where it happens, at the cross and at the resurrection. So now in verses 6-9, Paul continues, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. There's the resurrection. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And what I'd like to say about this is that every single place where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded. And God will physically restore through the last Adam what the first Adam lost. And as believers, we will have even greater or as believers, we, there will be even greater glory that we will experience than if we had never sinned, because now that we are united to the last greater Adam or the second man, we inherit what is his. Isn't that amazing? And God must do this, okay? This is regeneration. He must, he must do this, or we are just forgiven sinners, and we will keep on sinning, Okay? We are kind of like, if you watch Netflix, The Walking Dead. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you probably know, know enough to, to be able to picture um, what that may, may look like, okay? That is our old man. So there must be a new life, and we are either in Adam or in Christ. There's no in-between. We are one or the other, okay? And just as those who are in Adam partake of sin and death and all that is true of him, those in Christ partake of all that is true of Christ, including, but not limited to, the unsearchable riches and his inheritance that is his. That'd be Ephesians uh, 3, 3, 8 for cross-reference. And in verse 10, for the death that he died to sin once and for all, those in Christ, the life he lives, he lives to God. This is what it looks like to be in Christ. We live lives to God because not only do we have new lives, but we get new hearts. So we're not just new, he has to do something else because our hearts need to be regenerated as well. Said a different way, we sin because we have bad hearts, and basically our hearts still want to jump out of the perfectly good airplane. So he has to deal with that. Well, how does he deal with that? One of the things that he accomplishes in the cross is that we don't want to jump out of the plane because we don't want to. That's redundant. But we don't want to jump out of the plane. Why would we do that? God is going to make sure when he circumcises our hearts, that's the, that's the promise in the Old Testament, that we are born spiritually, and being born spiritually, we have eyes to see and to worship him in truth. We see him as he is. Do you remember the woman at the well? Do you remember how he just, he sees this Samaritan woman, and he stops, and he talks to her? It's one of my, my favorite exchanges with Christ, and it's like he it kind of bears his soul with her, and, and, you know, she has her idea of, of, of what it's going to look like because she's heard the Jews talk about when, when Christ returns. And, and he answers her, and he, he tells her, you know, woman, I, I know that you're thirsty, and, and I, I'm the one who's going to make you. Um, I'm, the, I'm the one. Life comes through me. And then he tells her, true worshipers, worship me in spirit and in truth. And I just feel like that was a moment where Christ shared his heart. You know, if you, if you love someone, you share with them which, what, you, what really matters to you. And I feel like he opened his heart and said, you know what matters to me? I have worshipers who worship me in spirit and truth. That's what I want. And that's what he's getting at. And that's what we are able to do, being circumcised, having hearts that are circumcised, and having new hearts. God is going to make sure, by doing this, 
that sin is no less absurd to those in Christ than jumping out of a perfect good air, perfectly good airplane to begin with. Why would we ever leave his providence, care, concern, purposes, and most importantly, his company? Isn't that the problem that Israel had all along? They had all of this, but they did not choose him. So this is painful, and this is where the Lord's heart is, and what he desires is for us to be restored to this glory and to have this intimacy with him. And this happens through us having new hearts. Paul Washer says of this work in regeneration, it is the supernatural work of God whereby the sinner's dead, deprived heart of stone is replaced with a new heart that is both willing and able to respond to God's love and obedience. And then verse 11 So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. So we are six chapters into Romans, and this is Paul. He does not shy away ever from telling us what to do if we've read his other letters. But yet he has not given us a single thing to do in this entire letter so far. So the first time he tells us to do something, you'd think we should stop and pay attention to what it is. And what's fascinating is he tells us, consider yourselves dead. The King James Version says, reckon yourselves dead. So the first thing we're to do is to reckon. Well, what does that mean? Well, reckon means to accept reality as it really is. This implies that it's some work on our part to consider the work of regeneration at the cross, to consider the blood. We have to reckon it so. When we reckon something, we reckon something that is a fact that is true because it is true. So this is something that's happened. We look at the word of God and we believe it, whether we feel it or not. And here's the deal is that a lot of times there's a, we don't, we, we believe it up here, but we don't believe it in our heart. And so we say, God, I hear what that preacher said. I hear what this text said. Make this real to me and my heart. Help me believe that I'm dead. Help me to see myself in Christ on that cross when he died. Help me to reckon. This is a huge deal that we Believe him for this. So we reckon something that is fact to be, we don't reckon it to be true, but we reckon it because it is true. Does that make sense? And the cross is no less a concrete reality that we are dead than the blood that washed away our sins. And this is how we substantiate uh, these facts, is, and we experience our faith, is we, we reckon these things to be so. And so now that we have, recon- or we have um, regeneration, In verses 12 through 24, continuing in uh, chapter 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And what we see here is a picture of, of sanctification. Regeneration means new birth. Sanctification is growth. Justification happens on the basis of blood. Regeneration happens on the basis of the cross. And sanctification happens on the basis of the resurrection. Now that we are justified and have been crucified with Christ, we have been born of God with new hearts, and we walk by the Spirit. Okay? That is 
That is sanctification. And we can do this because the Holy Spirit was the result of the resurrection. Remember, Christ said to his disciples, unless I go to heaven, I cannot send my, I cannot send the Holy Spirit. That was his reward. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, and we work out our salvation. Now that we are raised to life in Christ, we are permanently set apart from God and his purposes. Mainly, and this is his purpose, what he's done and why he's done this, we are told God wants us to conform to the image of his son, and this happens through sanctification. It happens two ways, on the inside and on the out. And I'm going to go through this quickly. It's inward growth by God. We are born in Adam, and sin has corrupted our minds. Where uh, our, our wills are blinded, um, our, our wills are corrupted, our emotions are disturbed, and so God has to restore all these things, and so he moves in us to make us like him. And another way of saying this is that being in Christ, God works in me. J.I. Packer states that it's a divinely wrought moral innovate, renovation where we are increasingly changed from what we once were, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues where the fruit of the Spirit is progressively formed in us, and the Holy Spirit works to will and to act. 2 Corinthians states uh, in 7, 1, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so what we see here is that it is God-dependent effort. We have a responsibility to exert ourselves in sustained obedience that is expressed in abiding, as we continuously ask for God's help, which he gives, and without Christ enabling, we can do nothing, and Christ is ready to strengthen us for all we have to do. That's a big sentence. There's a lot there. It requires a whole week of, or maybe several, many years of study, uh, but that is in its, simpl- in, in, in its simplicity. And then, all of a sudden, enter Romans 7. Why do we have to work out our salvation? Paul says, because we, while we have a new nature, we still have the flesh. Well, what is the flesh? The flesh is a part of Adam that persists in us. John Piper says we are not in the flesh, but we are still fleshly while we wait Christ's return. So we are conscious of the presence of sin in our lives, having the flesh, and we feel this tension. And the tension is evidence of the fact that we are no longer in the courtroom being judged, but we are in the family. That's why we feel the tension. If you are struggling over sin and you are loathing your flesh and you are saying with Paul, oh, wretched man I am, he's not saying I'm wretched because I'm in sin. He's saying this is a... I, this is a battle in me. I wish I didn't have to struggle with it. And one day he won't have to because our flesh, at the consummation of all things, is going to be gone. And something I'd like to say briefly about the flesh is there, it should never surprise you. There's still everything evil in it, and God actually never fixes it. So it is there in all of its yuckiness, but, but we don't even have to fix it. What we have to do is walk in the Spirit. God gives us another solution. Your flesh is really ugly. Don't even worry about it. Everything's ugly there. If you find yourself walking in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. That's our provision. That's his provision. So walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay. So desires will come to the believers, and we are to resist and conquer these passions. And being in Christ, we will experience substantial and observable victory over sin because of God's power that is at work within us. And I would like to say one more thing about Romans 7. A lot of people will stop at Romans 7, and they'll say, oh my goodness, Paul went through this, and it's just so hard, and I'm just a failure, and it's, this is proof that I can never really do this Christian thing. Well, that's not true, because... You cannot separate Romans 7 from Romans 8, where Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. We have victory over the flesh being in Christ. 
And so that is, Romans 7 is not the final word. It is a real struggle because we still have to tackle it, but we have victory in Christ and we walk in the Spirit. We will continue to grow in that victory and be transformed into his image. So a few points of application before I go to Israel. Number one, don't let your flesh surprise you. Number two, uh, Romans 6.12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And what I just want to say about our flesh is it's kind of like a pop-up mole. You know those things where you, every time it pops up, another one pops up, (laughs) right? We have to remind ourselves that now that we are in Christ, we always have a choice. We can always choose to obey the desires of the flesh or to obey Christ. There are three things, actually there's four, I put down four, um, that I remind myself when I get in the battle with my flesh. Number one, I tell you, so Sarah, the Bible says, the power that raised Christ from the dead is alive at work in you. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. And by the way, that verse, if it is not used in this context right here, is wrong. It does not help you climb a mountain. It is successful to help you overcome your flesh. So, next one. God says, he will not allow me to be tempted more than I can bear. So if I say, Lord, this is too much, I'm lying, not him. He will give me a way out. There have been many times I've fallen on my flesh, and I'm like, all right, Lord, show me what my way out was. Right there. He'll bring it to my mind. He always provides a way out. And then the final thing, and this is on my really tough battles, and I remember going through them, and uh, that's Hebrews 12.4. Have I resisted to the point of shedding blood? In other words, it, when we have to say no to our flesh, Brian told my husband this one time. He said, you have to suffer. It's not fun to say no to your flesh. There is a pain and a death that happens there. And we have to fight it. And so I ask myself, have I resisted the point of shedding blood? No. The answer is always no. I can do this. Christ died for me. I'm going to say no. And by the way, this has been very convicting for me. I'm going to be working on it harder. Okay? Several more points. The flesh, remind yourself, no longer represents who you truly are. Being born again with a new nature and a new heart, you've been buried with Christ. And if you are, a new, if you are in Christ, then your nature is good. It is actually not biblical to say there's nothing good in you because now that Christ lives in you, there is something very good. And that is your true identity, whether you feel that way or not. Next, we reckon, we believe that we are dead and buried, And final point on application is we fix our eyes on Christ. You know, I don't believe that we'll ever live sin-free, but I think if there's someone who does, was to do it, it would just look like someone who was so in love with Christ that they never wanted to sin. They'd just forget. They'd be so satisfied in him that sin, sin just wouldn't tempt them because they just love him so much. I think that's what it would look like. When he tells us, abide in me, and then I in you, notice that First, he says, abide in me. That's the order. We abide in him, and then he works out his will in us. He takes care. He takes care of it, and we trust him for that. So now that we have finished this section, I want to remind you of the eschatological, what means end-timed reality of the new heart. God promised this to Israel. Everything that we have just studied is a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that we have studied so hard and so diligently in the study. 
particularly my favorite, <laughs> Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Of all the promises that were ever made to Israel, this is the biggest of them all. Israel had uncircumcised hearts. In other words, they had the law, but not the willingness to obey. This is what made them break covenant, bring dishonor to God, and lose their glory. It is the reason the temple was destroyed, the reason they lost the land, went into exile. It is even the reason that they crucified Christ. All along, they wanted the horizontal blessings more than Christ. Yet the reality of circumcision of the heart is that the heart has its priorities corrected. Notice that Paul, above all else, wanted Christ. And he was grieved above all else that Israel was separated, not from the inheritance of the promises, but from a person. They didn't know him. This is what he longed for. His desire was vertical, both for himself and Israel. And so he labors in Romans to explain that one of the reasons they missed is because they thought that the law was the antidote to human evil, but he says the law itself is no good because it comes from God and reflects his will. Or I'm sorry, it is good because it comes from God and reflects his will, but it supplies no power to obey. And thus, circumcised hearts is what Israel needed most for them to obey all along. It is what is needed for them to inherit the promises and for them to return to exile. Isaiah 1.19 says, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good land. Deuteronomy 30, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but when these things come upon you, the blessing and the cursings, which I've set before you, and you call them to mine among the nations, and you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and your children, obey his voice, and all I have commanded you today with all your heart and all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you from among the peoples where the Lord has scattered you, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. There it is. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and that you may live there it is but the good news now that christ has come is that for those in christ whether jew or gentile they have the gift of the spirit which circumcises the heart and when the heart is circumcised the law is kept the law was both fulfilled in christ and is fulfilled in us when we walk by the spirit and not by the flesh in sanctification now, because we are new creations with a new heart, we can inherit the new world. This is the garden restored and more glorious with a king that reigns for eternity in righteousness. So then in chapters 9 through 12, with so many Old Testament promises fulfilled to the church, in 9 through 12, Paul returns his focus to Israel and whether the Old Testament promises made to ethnic Israel will be fulfilled. Paul explains in Romans that salvation was never promised to every ethnic Israelite, yet a remnant of Israel was and is being saved. Was not Paul an Israelite? Israel, as an ethnic group at large, because there wasn't a remnant, did not obey, because although they received the law, they never had the power to obey it, and because they desired to establish their own righteousness instead of seeking God's righteousness like Abraham did by faith. Paul reminds them of this too. Their hearts being hard from unrepentant sin, God is going to judge them by temporarily hardening their heart 
due to their own obstinacy. While salvation is equally accessible to Jews and Gentiles in Christ, Gentiles will stream into the church during this hardening, and that is the season that we're in now. So this season is one for the Gentiles, but God will return for them. As we have seen in our study throughout the Old Testament, in all the Old Testament promises, there is a glorious future for ethnic Israel, and this is not fulfilled in a small believing remnant. Those who think that God is done with Israel are wrong. In fact, of the 16 prophets, 10 speak of a future restoration of Israel where God will restore the faithful exiles and be a sanctuary in their midst. Furthermore, according to Paul in Romans, the majority of ethnic Israel will not always resist the gospel. Paul in these chapters explains that the inclusion of the Gentiles will eventually provoke Israel to jealousy and lead to their salvation and the circumcision of their hearts where they will become recipients of all that God promised them. Thomas Schreiner says, a future mass ingathering of ethnic Israel where they trust in Christ's provision in his death and resurrection will fulfill God's covenantal salvific promises with his people. So in closing, when Christ prayed for his people, he didn't pray for safety, security. He prayed for oneness. The greatest blessing of being in Christ for the Jew and for the Gentile is knowing him. Of all that we have studied today, if everything we've studied today happens, when God opens our eyes, oh, I'm sorry, everything we've studied today happens when God opens our eyes to see these truths. And so this is my prayer for us as we close. Oh Lord, because you died, we have been forgiven. Because you rose again, we have life. And because you were exalted to the right hand of the Father, we have the Holy Spirit. So now we pray with Paul. Oh God, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened to these truths, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you have worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. Amen.